0: Good morning and welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are joining us online or with us in person or even watching this at some later date, we are excited to worship with you this morning. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. No matter where you're watching from, we are glad you're here with us. At Dayspring, we believe that nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just exploring. Or maybe you walked away and are reconsidering. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. And we would love nothing more than to walk with you. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, please explore our website at dsf.church. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. For today's service, you can find study questions in the resources section of our website, And now, let's join our service, already in progress. Well, very little captures the imagination of the church. Like, talk about the end times. Uh, The rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, the second coming of Jesus, judgment day. Uh, Even just one of those concepts alone is enough to make your heart race and send blood rushing to your brain. Uh, Since the birth of the church almost 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, Christians have been looking at current events through the lens of Bible prophecy and wondering if today is the day. Uh, In modern times, uh, this conversation was rebirthed with the 1970 publication of Hal Lindsey's classic work, The Late Great Planet Earth which was the best-selling nonfiction book of the decade. It spawned a TV show, movies, and sequels. And at that time, it was the Christian version of Scared Straight. Uh, whether it was intentional or not, Lindsay's approach seemed to be, let's scare people out of hell and into heaven. Now, how effective his approach was at reaching the lost is unknown to me. But in the church, it added fuel to our longing to exchange the trials of this world for eternity with Jesus. Uh, Lindsay's success laid the foundation for an entire end times industry. A book after book, fiction and non-fiction and movie after movie have fed uh, more end times conspiracy theories than we could even count or remember. And while the late great planet Earth is probably the most famous non-fiction work, undoubtedly the most famous fiction isn't even a book. It's 16 books. Even more if you count the kids series, graphic novels, video game, and movies. Uh, Left Behind by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins hit the scene in 1995. In all, 13 of the original books were New York Times bestsellers and have sold more than 80 million copies worldwide in multiple languages. I'm sure that the authors would argue that though the story is fiction, the underlying theology is anything but fiction. Uh, Even in the church... Christians want to talk about the end times. It's the most requested teaching series. Tell people you're having a Bible study in Philippians and a few people will show up, but a study on Revelation will fill a room. I think you get the point. Very little captures the imagination of the church like end times speculation. It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket when the jackpot is in the hundreds of millions. Even though you know that the chances of you winning is smaller than the chance of you moving to Mars, you still can't help but think of all the ways you'd honor God with your winnings. Just think of all the people you could help. The possibilities are so enticing. You know, when it comes to the lottery, I figure I don't need to buy a ticket anyway. The chances of God pu- just putting the ticket in my wallet are probably better than if I actually bought a ticket. The only difference is that the odds of me spending eternity with Jesus, no matter how the end times events unfold, are 100%. <laughs> now, I, I love to read about and study the end times. I have all of the left behind books on the fiction shelves in my office. I also have commentaries and nonfiction works by some of the great thinkers. Uh, Back in 2006, I read one book by an author who, with a rather convincing argument, speculated that we could actually figure out when the rapture was going to occur, and coincidentally, it would be during Rosh Hashanah of that year. Obviously it wasn't, or I guess we were all left behind, But that didn't stop a few of us on the worship team from convincing our wives that just in case this was the last night on earth, we should make it a special one. Yes, that argument only works on your wife once, but we'd all say it was worth it. (laughs) Here's the bottom line. The chasm is vast between what we do know for absolutely sure about the end times and what we don't. And the chasm has been filled with lots of convincing speculation. It all sounds good and plausible. But at the end of the day, nobody knows exactly how it's all going to go down. The interpretation of prophecy isn't that easy. If it were, nobody would have missed that Jesus was the promised Messiah the first time he came to the earth. We all know how that turned out. Exactly like God designed, but exactly the opposite of what all the scholars of the day predicted. So, hmm, maybe we should learn a lesson from history. Now, if today is the first day you are joining us here in the room or online on our live stream, you've joined us at the end of our series in which we've been exploring some of the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. A doctrine, theology, Uh, what you believe matters far more than most of us are consciously aware. You build your life on what you believe, even if what you believe isn't actually true. And when it comes to all things spiritual it better be true uh, didi and i were watching a romantic comedy on amazon prime last week one of the main characters actually believed he was a bee yes you heard me right a bee obviously not true but it still messed up his life for a very long time what you believe matters and what we believe about the Bible, about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the human condition, salvation, the church, all of that matters more than anything else because those things are eternal. The consequences of being wrong are far worse than just the crazy of thinking you are a bee. Now, we've only been talking about some of the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. As a reminder, essential beliefs, as the word suggests, essential beliefs are essential to the Christian faith. If you don't believe them, you might be deeply religious, but what you believe isn't the Christian faith. The Gospel Coalition has done a great job of summarizing 99 of the essential doctrines of the church. And if you are interested, you'll find a link to that document In the online version of this week's message notes. Uh, That list doesn't begin to cover what we call non-essential theology or doctrine. With non-essential doctrine, we can agree to disagree and still be in fellowship with one another. Uh, For example, the exact method of observing communion. Some churches believe you should practice communion at every service. Some, like us, do it regularly every four to six weeks. Also, whether you sprinkle or dunk in baptism and at what age you baptize someone or the role of women in church leadership. Uh, Different churches have different interpretations and that's okay. Where the Bible is silent or unclear, there is liberty. When it comes to non-essential doctrine, the overriding principle is love and grace. Let those lead you and there won't be any problems. Of course, love and grace should be the guiding principle in everything we do. But that's another message. When it comes to theology, for this sermon series, we selected eight core beliefs of the church, uh, the ones that in particular help spur spiritual growth. Because what you believe matters, it moves from your heart to your head and then out through your actions. So if we want to act like Jesus, we have to believe and think like him first, Otherwise, we end up living out a works-based theology, which makes, uh, makes us like the Pharisees of old. Now, if you're here today in the room or online, and you haven't decided whether or not you believe this stuff about Jesus, maybe you're a skeptic, or you've been hurt by the church, or someone who claims to follow Jesus, but it doesn't seem like they really do, it's fantastic that you are here. A good, Bible-centered Christ follower trying to live out these principles well, even if a bit imperfectly, is the best place you can go to find out what Christians really believe. Lots of people have an opinion, but I've never heard a secular explanation of what Christians believe actually hit the bullseye. We're trying to be good, Bible-centered Christ followers here at Dayspring. And yes, we live out our beliefs imperfectly. But we keep pressing into truth, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are living more and more with more and more integrity every day. And for those of you who are skeptics and Jesus checker-outers, here's what we believe. For those of you who are newer to your faith, the same is true for you. Here's what we believe. You need to know what we believe if you are going to grow into the image of Christ as you deepen your spiritual roots. For those of you adult Christians, you have more responsibility You need to be the example in the way you live and you should be able to explain this accurately to people asking questions. And if people aren't looking at your life and asking questions about why you are different, you have some work to do. But you should be able to walk through the scriptures with them. For those of you in between the skeptic and the spiritual adult, at the very least, what we believe should have moved from your heart to your head, meaning that you should be able to explain what we believe to someone, even if you can't quite find the Bible verses to back up your story. Make sense? One person. All right. Okay, back to the end times. When it comes to end times theology, or the churchy word is eschatology— It can be challenging to discern between essential and non-essential theology and mere speculation. And believe me, there's lots of non-essential theology and speculation. Today, let's explore five essential theologies that that we know for certain about the end. And the first is that death is not final. In the beginning, life was eternal both spiritually and physically. Adam and Eve, as inhabitants of the Garden of Eden, had access to the tree of life. Its fruit, when eaten, would make you live forever. We know that from the end of Genesis chapter 3. They lost access to the tree when they were expelled from the garden after their sin, which meant death was introduced to our physical bodies. But while physical death wasn't immediate... The consequence of their sin was immediate spiritual death, which we might define as separation from God. It was the immediate result of living outside of God's intended design. And thanks to them, we are born spiritually dead. Now, of course, Jesus is the remedy for this death. His resurrection was also the resurrection for those who choose to accept the free gift of life when they confess this brokenness and believe in Jesus. At that moment, just as Adam and Eve experienced immediate spiritual death when they sinned, we are immediately spiritually resurrected and again will live forever. We will never die spiritually again. Of course, we are still stuck in these bodies. So let's look at how the Apostle Paul described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning right at the top at verse 1. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Now, just to be clear, While Jesus said in John chapter 14 that in his father's house there are many mansions or rooms that are being prepared for us, that isn't what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about that moment when we exchange our earthly bodies for our new eternal bodies. Until that time, we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So our spiritual birth brings with it a dissonance, a tension. We are living souls in a dying body. Our rebirth isn't quite complete yet, and we feel it. This longing to escape our dying bodies is part of what makes the conversation about the end times so alluring. God has wired us for eternity, It's like waiting for that yummy-smelling apple pie to come out of the oven. It just drives you nuts waiting for the taste to make it real. The aroma of eternity is calling to us. We can't wait to fully taste the real thing. Now, it's far too complicated to go deep this morning, but in the realm of non-essential doctrine, many scholars teach that until the second coming, those who die will be in what is called an intermediate state. I wouldn't bring it up at all, but I don't want you to be studying other passages and get confused. The intermediate state is not a location like Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament or what the Catholic Church calls purgatory. Uh, Just a few verses further in 2 Corinthians 5 uh, verse 8, Paul says, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For then we will be at home with the Lord. When we die, we are in the presence of God whenever we die. So the intermediate state is not a location, but has to do with when we get our eternal bodies. Now in this passage, it seems clear that when we shed these broken bodies, we immediately get our eternal ones. However, you can also reasonably read in other passages that we won't receive our new bodies until the second coming. Which means that those who die before that time enter into this intermediate state where they are either disembodied spirits or given temporary bodies. Again, it is non-essential theology, so it's okay to disagree. You can see this possibility in some of Paul's other writings. Personally... I believe that since God exists outside of time and that's where we'll join him, we probably get our eternal bodies right away in the same way that Jesus died for the sins of people who had already died but believed without ever believing in him like we think of it. Either way, it will be glorious and far better than what we have now. For both the believer and the unbeliever, death is not final, it is just the next step to eternity. The only difference is the destination. Death is inevitable. But for the Christian, death is not something to be feared. Death means victory. Our faith will be made sure. Now the second certainty of the end times is the return of Jesus is promised. Now if you've been around church for long, you know that it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. Jesus will return. For most of us, the question isn't if he will return, but when. Uh, his disciples were curious as well. They asked him what the signs would be and how they would know that it was time. Uh, here's what he said in Matthew chapter 24. Now, this is a long response, but, but stick with me. Uh, Jesus told them, "'Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah.'" They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't, go bother to, don't bother to go look, or look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I read those words and think, it's got to be at any moment now. Can the world be getting any more like Jesus is describing here? And we could break it down sign by sign, and many people have, uh, illustrating how now, more than ever, these signs point to any day now. And yet, at every generation, every generation of the church from the moment of its birth at Pentecost, looked at these signs and thought exactly the same thing. And yet, we are still here. Jesus hasn't yet come again. The first nine signs occurred during the first century church, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But they've also reoccurred since that time. Uh, Pentecost birthed what we call the church age. We are still in the church age. And the end times began at Pentecost and continue today. And tomorrow, until the day Jesus comes again. The only thing we know for sure is that every day that passes, we are one day closer to his return. And he will return. And diving into some non-essential theology for a moment, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it is non-essential theology and this series is about essential theology, but let's talk about the rapture. Uh, For those of you new to the concept, many Christians believe, me included, that prior to the second coming of Jesus, he will remove his beloved church in what we call the rapture. Uh, In the blink of an eye, all true Christ followers will just disappear and will cash in our early ticket to eternity. For the record, you won't find the word rapture in the Bible. It is just the word we use to describe the concept. Some Christians believe that the rapture will occur before what the Bible calls the seven-year tribulation period that will lead up to Jesus' second coming. We call that view a pre-trib, pre-tribulation rapture. Some Christians believe that we will still be on earth for part of the seven-year tribulation, and at some point in the middle, we will be raptured into eternity. We call that view a mid-trib rapture. Both of those views would suggest that the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation is for those who have come to know Christ during the tribulation. And then, of course, the third view is that we aren't raptured at all, but we are here on earth throughout the entire tribulation period waiting for the second coming of Jesus. We call that post-trib. Scholars can justify all three viewpoints from Scripture. Regardless of what you believe, it is non-essential theology. You can believe any option and still be a good, solid, Bible-believing Christian. I believe the Bible teaches a pre-trib rapture for lots of reasons we don't have time to go into right now. However, I could be wrong. And if I am, it just means I still have kingdom work to do on earth for seven extra years. Jacob worked for an an extra seven years for Rachel, believing she was worth it. How much more is Jesus worth it? Now, Jesus is coming again. And one way or another, I will be leaving with him. Will you? Now, next up, the third thing we know for certain about the end times, our resurrection is coming. Uh, Most of us have given at least some thought to what we want done with our bodies when we die. I remember the first time I told my mom that I wanted to be cremated and my ashes just thrown in the garbage. Her response was something like, what about when Jesus comes again? My thinking is this. It's already a miracle to raise a body from the grave. If God can do that, then finding my ashes wherever they are isn't beyond the ability of God. It's just maybe a little greater miracle, and I'm, let's go for the greater miracle. Besides, what about the people who died thousands of years ago? Their bodies are literally dust. The truth is when Jesus comes again the dead in Christ will rise. A look at how Paul puts it in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning at 13. And now dear brothers and sisters we want you to know that what, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, you can probably see in these verses the argument for an intermediate state. Verse 14 says that God will bring back the believers who have died. And verse 15 says the dead will rise from their graves, seemingly indicating that our spirit will be reunited with our body. But more to the point, we will be resurrected. We will have new bodies. Which begs the question, what will our new bodies look like? Some of us aren't too wild about our current bodies. And the thought of having them even perfected for eternity is less than exciting. Uh, Paul addresses this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 35. And I'm going to let you look at that on your own. But in a nutshell, Paul says that our current bodies are like a seed. When the seed is planted and watered and then sprouts, the plant doesn't look anything like the seed. Our earthly bodies don't look anything like our glorious eternal bodies will look. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And that's all we know. (laughs) The rest is a mystery. I believe we will recognize people we know now, not by their physical attributes, but by the content of their character. So we better make sure we do everything to seal the cracks in our character before they are with us for a long, long time. After the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of his people, the next thing we know to be true about the end times is that judgment is certain. Now let's take a quick look at Revelation chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 11. The Apostle John writes... And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds." Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this will be quite a scene. Uh, Scholars disagree on the number of judgments at the end of time and exactly who will be at which judgment. On the surface, I would say that the judgment that John describes here is the judgment of those who, of whose names are not found in the book of life. By definition, they are still dead. We who follow Christ are not dead, which means it would not be our judgment. Uh, that doesn't mean we are off the hook. Back in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul, writes, writing to Christians, says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, the fact that scholars differ in their interpretation tells you that there is more to the story. This is a complex argument. But here's what matters. Those people whose names are not found in the book of life, meaning they didn't confess their sin and believe in Jesus while they were living, will receive their just reward, which is an eternal death. And whether it is at the same judgment or a separate one, those who follow Christ have already been judged by the finished work of Christ. Our judgment won't be about punishment, but will be about reward. We will be judged according to the quality of our works. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Anyone who builds on that foundation. Now the foundation he is talking about here is Christ. Anyone who builds on the foundation of Christ may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like somebody, someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Now, the, the Bible tells us that there will be no more sadness, no more tears, no sorrow, only joy. So we have nothing to fear about this judgment. I do believe that when it comes to our works that don't make it through the fire, we will have an understanding and perspective about those earthly failures. And I think we'll be surprised by some of what we thought were successes that don't make it, and some of the failures that do. But only joy will remain. Now with that said, It is the works that make it through the fire that will qualify us not only for our reward, but for our eternal responsibilities. Eternity isn't lounging on the beach doing nothing. We will share in the administration of God's kingdom. At the very least, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we will participate in in judging the angels. No, we won't ever become angels. I doubt we'll have wings. I'm not even sure most angels have wings. We only have descriptions of a few. And there's probably no harp. But we will have responsibility. And who knows what else? We might have a job in the new heaven or on the new earth. Because the fifth thing we know for certain is that the restoration of heaven and earth is coming. Now, I'll let you read Revelation 21 and 22 on your own. Uh, When all is said and done... There will be a new Jerusalem that is more magnificent than we could ever imagine. God's presence will permeate the entire city. He won't be confined to a temple. We won't need the sun or the moon because the glory of God will be light enough. Imagine seeing God face to face and not being blinded by the brilliance or struck dead by his holiness as we would be without Jesus. No more sin, no curse, no disease, no poverty, No loneliness, no fear, no anxiety, no cancer, no divorce, no suffering, no abuse, no pain, no tears, no sorrow. Only peace, joy, and love in the presence of God. You can see why thousands of books have been written about it. Who wouldn't want that? That desire is hardwired into our DNA. We were created for relationship with God. But we aren't there yet. Which begs the question, why? Now, let me talk to those of you who follow Christ for a moment. Everyone else, this doesn't apply to you. You can just take a break for a bit. We've all been fed up with what we see going on in our world. We've all prayed, come Lord Jesus, come. And while I don't think that prayer is wrong, I've also been personally convicted that it isn't right either. You see, most of the time we pray that prayer with ourselves in mind. We want to escape hardship. We want to escape brokenness. We want to escape the darkness we see overcoming our culture. Again, I get it. I've prayed that prayer. But earlier this year, I was reading this next verse, and God changed my heart. The apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, if Jesus answers my prayer and comes right this moment, there are people going to hell. I realize that I care more about my temporary discomfort than I do about a sinner's permanent destination. Let that sink in a moment. I care more about me escaping my temporary problems than I do about a lost person going to hell. That is about the most un Jesus like thing a person could believe. That's not how Jesus feels. And if I'm supposed to be like Jesus, it can't be the way I feel. In that moment, God broke my heart for the lost in a new way, and it led me to change the way I pray. I realized that at some point in time, there will be the last person God saves before Jesus comes again. If Adam was the first man, I've named the last person God saves, Zach. And I've started praying for Zach to come to Christ. Because I know that before Zach comes to Christ, every other person God chooses to save will have already made their decision, and I won't be condemning anyone to hell. And Jesus will come. We we must care deeply that people are going to hell. We will never be like Jesus if we don't. And now, while I'm talking to Christ followers... I've talked to many of you during these past months. Many of us are discouraged about the direction our culture is heading. And I want to remind you of something. God is sovereign. He has a plan. And he's either in charge or he's not. The end of the book has been written. The Bible is very clear about how dark this world is going to get. It's part of his plan. The darker the world gets, the better the lost can see the light of love in those who follow Jesus. Which means our primary job is to make sure our light shines brighter and brighter. Don't lose focus. If you are anxious or fearful or are allowing the situation in this world to steal your peace, you are out of alignment with God's plan for your life. Peace comes from God. The lack of peace never comes from God. Don't let it dim your light. Get back into alignment. Okay, now, for those of you who have not chosen to follow Christ to this point in your lives, time is running out. One way or another, you will face your judgment day. Without Christ, your sin, no matter how small and insignificant it might seem to you, your sin has disqualified you from any future but hell. Call on the name of Jesus that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and in control, that you are Lord of all and you have a plan and purpose that will, uh, will, will make their way through uh, our lives no matter what. Thank you that we can have peace in the midst of the storm Because we know Jesus is alive. Because we know Jesus will return. Because we know Jesus loves us. Father, may we rest more and more each day in that truth. And Father, awaken in us a heart for people that don't have a relationship with Jesus. May we burn for the lost. And if you're watching today, if you're here in the room and you haven't yet decided to follow Jesus Christ, call on the name of the Lord. Your sin has broken the relationship with with God. But there's an easy way to get off the train to hell. Surrender your life to Jesus. Believe that he came for you, that he died, that he rose again, and that he offers life. All you have to do in these moments is say, yes, Lord, I believe. We'll help you figure out the rest. Father, we pray for Zach. We pray that your perfect work would be done in his life. And we trust everything until that day when you come again into your hands. And we commit ourselves to shining the light of Jesus as brightly as we can. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters and God never ceases to surprise us with what he is able to do because of your commitment to following him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. We don't expect you to contribute financially. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text give to the number on your screen or mail one of those old-fashioned checks to us. You would also bless us if you would subscribe, share, and like our live stream wherever you watch it. The social media algorithms use those likes to elevate our social media presence, which means more people hear about the ways Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems. Until next week, may the grace of God bless every aspect of your life.